The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Scorebox. Let's get into your headlines. The major U.S. averages gained more than 10% over the week. As news, Bernie Sanders is dropping out of the presidential race, helped the Dow surge past 23,000 late in the session. Fed minutes show officials see the economic outlook as, quote, profoundly uncertain and plan to keep rates near zero until the virus impact has been weathered. Crude prices add to sharp gains amid hopes of an OPEC plus agreement today, while Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund has taken advantage of the recent sell-off, reportedly taking large positions in some of Europe's biggest oil companies. And two of the world's biggest businesses show the differing impact of the lockdown. Disney adds more than 50 million subscribers to its streaming service while Starbucks warns its second quarter earnings will fall nearly 50%. And lockdowns across Europe set to be extended as officials say the peak has not passed yet. Now, here in the United Kingdom, an emergency cabinet meeting today will review the restrictions. So what an interesting combination of stories we've got for you today. And let me just pick up off of uh, what we said in the headlines there about how there are differing outcomes for businesses at the moment, depending on exactly where they exist in the life of the individual. And obviously, Disney, uh, one of those rare businesses that's actually benefiting from the lockdown at the moment, adding 50 million subscribers. But I think Starbucks, more typical of the kind of announcements we're seeing, Uh, You'll have seen McDonald's as well saying that they uh, were impacted on the first quarter. They saw a a 20% uh, reduction in their business. But Starbucks, I think, with that really big suggestion that they're going to see quite a significant um, halving of uh, some of their uh, revenue lines uh, as we see this crisis roll forward. But you know what? It hasn't stopped the major U.S. indices grinding higher here. And there were a couple of pieces of information yesterday that helped. Obviously, we will talk about both in some detail. But one was the fact that Bernie Sanders officially withdrew from the presidential race. Did anybody think he was actually going to win at that point? Somehow that helped the markets to the close take another leg higher. And of course, the uh, other bit of uh, critical information we had was the Fed minutes, where it was very clear in the Fed minutes that there was unanimity on the need to be very aggressive with interest rate cuts there. So that's how we closed out the session. And what a remarkable week it's been. You know, we have economist after economist coming on the program saying the markets are just not pricing in the real economic impact of this crisis. And we'll get another look at the jobs uh, impact today when we have claims numbers. And some economists think that could be as high as 6 million. To add to the 10 million we've already seen in the previous few few weeks, that many people no longer being paid, no longer consuming, no longer economic, economically activity. It's going to have 
an impact. But you wouldn't have known that if you looked at the numbers here for the week uh, to date. Trading session, the Dow up 11.3%. The S&P putting in 10.5% gains here. So we'll see how the session plays through today. We also obviously have uh, a number of other important events here. What will happen with the Euro group? Will they finally bury the hatchet in their difference of opinion over coronavirus bonds? And what will happen with the oil story? Will we get an agreement on oil? Anyway, that's where we are week to date so far. Let's talk about some of the stories. US President Donald Trump has attacked the World Health Organization for a second day, saying, quote, they need to get their priorities right. Trump once again accused the WHO of being China's and threatened to end funding for the UN agency for disagreeing with his initial travel restrictions on China. In response, the head of the WHO pleaded for global unity and called on leaders not to politicize coronavirus. We will have many body bags in front of us if we don't behave. When there are cracks at national level and global level, that's when the virus succeeds. For God's sake, we have lost, we have lost more than 60,000 citizens of the world. Even 1% is precious, whether it's young or old. More than a million cases. What are we doing? Uh, Well, Fed officials have warned the near-term outlook for the U.S. economy has deteriorated due to the coronavirus outbreak, but have pledged to keep interest rates close to zero to help support growth. That according to the minutes from the central bank's emergency meetings in March, when the Fed lowered rates and boosted its asset purchases to shore up the economy during the pandemic. Steve Leisman has more on the report. Minutes to the Federal Reserve meeting released today show that the Federal Reserve cut interest rates to a range of zero to a quarter percent and expected them to stay there until the economy had weathered the effects of the coronavirus. The Federal Reserve, when it was meeting back then, said that the near-term economic outlook had deteriorated sharply. And imagine that was three weeks ago. The Fed was prepared at the time to use all tools to support the credit markets. And indeed, in the ensuing weeks, it has stepped up and used trillions of dollars of balance sheet to support credit markets. Uh, The Fed feared the harm that the virus could do both to the U.S., and to global economies, including the pandemic, impairing consumer spending and consumer confidence. Of course, this was three weeks ago, and a lot has changed since then. But still, it showed the concern at the Federal Reserve at that time had elevated to a point of cutting rates to near zero and a willingness at that time to use uh, all the available tools to support the economy. And indeed, Fed officials saying there is more they will do than what they've already done. Steve Leisman, CNBC Business News. Fascinating. Steve, let's bring you back into the conversation. It seems to me that uh, anybody that is buying stocks at the moment is uh, engaging in a terrific gamble. We're back in that world where we're thinking, well, bad news is potentially good news here. And I think that's where the, the Fed comes into this story, because the supposition is, it seems to me, that 
Because there was so much weakness around the economy expressed in those Federal Reserve minutes and they implied that the recovery is likely to be very weak, ergo that means we get lots of support for the market, for the financial system, for the credit markets, for the high yield markets. And that means I go out and I buy stock and I uh, put myself in potentially harm's way. But I believe that the Fed has got my back. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, there's so many points loaded into what you just said. Good morning to you, my friend, by the way. We're at the end of a very long week. So uh, let's just go with it for now. Look, I I read the statement from the FOMC. Then I read it again. And people don't want to hear this. In fact, the FOMC doesn't want us to say this kind of thing. But they don't know any more than you and I do at the moment. And that's the truth. We always expect central banks and authorities and regulators to give us a hand on the shoulder and say, don't worry, guys, we've got this. Whether it's Draghi, whether it's Yellen, whether it's Bernanke, whoever it has been historically, it's like, we've got this, guys, don't worry. But when you look at what they said about the lack of clarity, here we go again, viewed the near-term US economic outlook as having deteriorated sharply in recent weeks, and here's the point, and has he, having become profoundly uncertain. The timing of the resumption of growth depended on the containment measures put in place, etc, etc, etc. They don't know any more than we do about what's going to happen next. They don't know because they are central bankers about the projection of this coronavirus, of the length of the lockdowns, of the success of what Andrew Cuomo and team are trying to do in New York and elsewhere around the globe as well. So they are in the dark, but all they can do is saying we are going to flood the market with money. We're going to try and keep dollar liquidity for the US and globally in place. And we're going to try and stop people defaulting as much as possible, whether you're a small business or a large corporation. We're going to try and keep the cash flowing from Wells Fargo, from JP Morgan, the other big financial institutions as well. But they don't know how long this is going to last and how quickly they're going to have to pull away some of these measures as well and how much they can afford to do and how much the markets are going to tolerate as well. The other point I wanted to raise, though, is what you said about investors dipping their toe in the dark. And you know it's been one of my constant thematics out here that being a trader and being an investor are two different things. But if I may indulge and and tie this together with another one of the key stories overnight, Saudi's investment fund has been buying stakes in key oil majors. So we understand. Again, I haven't looked too much into the details, but I've seen the same headlines that we've been talking about on Capital Connection and Squawkbox as well. <clears throat> they are investors. They're not trying to trade the market. And of course, they are potentially trying to diversify their economies as well. But they are investing in oil companies. And of course, they have their oil assets anyway, that they think over the cycle, over a longer term, are worth investing in. Now, we don't need to comment too much about that to say that they are investors rather than traders. And I thought that was fascinating. And for those who say, oh, but they're not diversifying. No, maybe they're not diversifying themselves. But as we've seen way before we got into this coronavirus hell that we're in now as well, these companies, especially these Western oil majors, were thinking very, very hard about their energy transition. So not only does Saudi get themselves a longer term investment at what they think is a low point of the cycle, they also buy themselves a stake in the energy transition. I think that's quite interesting. So that is an investment story on the back of the chaos we're seeing in the short term that even the Federal Reserve, I think, Jeff, has problems dissecting and interpreting. Yes, uh, but diversification. And I will, I will, I know you kind of pushed it to one side and you focused on the oil investment, but isn't there that danger here that there is just that doubling down on the same investment? We know Saudi is very dependent on its own energy revenues here. And by putting more money into oil companies, aren't they effectively just narrowing their opportunity to diversify their risk? We don't know how quickly coming out of this, 
the move will be away from carbon-based energy into renewables, whether we've slowed the pace or whether ultimately the experience of having clear skies for a change around the world might encourage that pace to quicken at this point. Isn't there a concentration of risk now for the Saudis? I think there is anyway. Uh, I think uh, NEOM and other investments haven't necessarily worked out. We've looked at a lot of people who have tried to diversify and look at other things. And it's it's a slow, long process. Um, I'll have a bet with you, Jeff. But the time you and I retire from CNBC, which hopefully I think we're due to retire in about 30 years time, there will still be a significant amount of hydrocarbons, whether it be gas, whether it be clean gas, carbon-free gas or stripped-down gas, what have you, whatever the products are, I'll have a bet with you that uh, hydrocarbons are still a large part of the energy mix. Maybe not as much as they are now, but when we're retiring, 2050, I think you and I are retiring, uh, then I would suggest to you that hydrocarbons will still be in abundance in a world which potentially will have a larger economy and a larger population. And that's the key, isn't it? The larger population and the larger economy, a lot of it will be coming from emerging. A lot of it, apparently, is going to be coming from Asia. 30 years. Have you seen the pension recently? I suspect we need to add a decade to that, my friend. I'll see you a little bit later on. UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak has confirmed the lockdown restrictions in the UK will be reviewed at an emergency government meeting today. Multiple reports have indicated the measures will be extended beyond next week. A decision on the lockdown will be the first major test for the government led by Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab since Prime Minister Boris Johnson went into intensive care. Okay, UK GDP, it says. All right, I should better, I better have a look for this. Um, the expectation was that we were going to get a uh, 0.1% number. Uh, the number that we've been delivered for February, 0.3%. Uh, the on-the-month number, 0.1%. So the year-on-year was plus 0.3% year on year. The poll was plus 0.5%. The uh, February number uh, was uh, 0.1% on the previous three months and uh, a negative 0.1% on the month. Let me just drill into this, actually, because there's fascinating uh, statistics on how this breaks down. The construction output, negative 0.2.7% year on year. Manufacturing output, negative 0 uh, sorry, negative uh, 3.9%, an industrial output, uh, negative 2.8%, services output plus 1.1% here. So services resilient in February, but everything else effectively in negative territory. And I think it just reiterates the message that the UK economy actually was grinding to a much slower speed, even before the full effect of coronavirus came out. And perhaps, Steve, Uh, That partly explains why the government is looking very closely at how quickly we might be able to remove some of these restrictions. Yeah, Jeff, look, isn't it extraordinary that yours and my job, which is so surrounding numbers, markets, politics, business, economics, has now moved on to quite extraordinary reporting. Let me just tell you what's happened in the last 24 hours. Uh, We've had another 938 deaths in the UK from coronavirus, the worst figure yet by a long way, 7,097 deaths in total. Horrendous, horrendous figures and death toll as well and, and, and societal damage as well. But 
The scientific and the medical community are getting a bit more optimistic. Now, it, it, what a horrible juxtaposition, but it's the news. The fact is that the deaths have gone up horribly, but the admissions rate, those in going into critical care in the last 24 hours, has slowed quite dramatically, uh, only up 4%. And Angela McLean, who is one of the, the scientific advisors who was flanking uh, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor Shekhar, who was uh, doing the briefing last night, he was saying that the UK data is showing that critical care demand is flattening. Now, that is what they've all been looking for, this, this so-called curve, the epidemiology curve that we're all talking about, the levelling of the curve, the plateau as well. This is what they want across Europe, in Italy, Spain, France. They all look for the plateau. And the problem is it doesn't just happen, then you go down again. It's not the inverse V. It can last a long time. But until we get to that plateau, you can't start thinking uh, about ending the lockdown as well. So we've got a meeting today. Uh, with Rishi Sunak will be there, I'm sure, uh, by video conference as well. Dominic Raab is going to be chairing it as well. Cobra committee meeting on COVID-19 and looking at the impact of, of the lockdown and looking at the extension of the lockdown. And everyone's been saying, and Sadiq Khan yesterday was on message as well, the uh, Labour mayor of London as well. Until you get the peak, forget about the ending of the lockdown. So it's due to end uh, this coming week. It was a three week period initially. It seems almost certain that across the political spectrum, whether it's Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, whether it's the UK government, whether it's uh, Sadiq Khan, they're all going to be on message. This has to continue because the weather in the UK, and you can tell actually for the first time in weeks, I'm wearing a jacket rather than 800 coats. The weather's getting good. It's going to be 20 odd degrees this weekend as well. And the last thing they want is big social gatherings, which is going to delay uh, the hitting of that peak and then getting over the other side. So a long way to go. I just... Uh, if you'll indulge me as well, because I've moved to a parliamentary shot behind me, and I think the Westminster shot is, is absolutely fantastic as well. But the reason why I'm here is because I can show you two things as well. And I do want to say there has been improving news over Boris Johnson overnight as well. The news is he's engaging positively with the clinical team. He's sitting up in bed and he is improving. And the reason why I just want to show you, and I think pictures, well, they're worth a thousand words, probably more than a thousand words for me, is because you've got parliament there, the seat of power in the UK. And look where we are. And there you go. Boris Johnson hopefully improving, hopefully up in bed, hopefully watching CNBC this morning in St. Thomas's Hospital behind me as well. So you can see just how close to Downing Street, to Westminster, uh, the Prime Minister was rushed over, of course, Sunday evening as well, in condition worsening. People were very worried originally. Now in ICU, hopefully on the mend, as indeed we hope for all those people who tragically found themselves in ICU. Back to you, Jeff. Indeed. Thanks, Steve. Caught in the crossfire. How is the OPEC plus oil war impacting individual exploration companies? We're going to speak to the CEO of Enquest. That's Amjad Basezu. That's a first on CNBC interview. We'll leave you with a look at how the Asian markets are faring. We'll see you in a moment. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Welcome back. Saudi Arabia's public investment fund has reportedly built up a $1 billion 
position in some of Europe's largest oil companies. The Wall Street Journal reporting the Kingdom's Sovereign Wealth Fund has used the industry sell-off as a buying opportunity to take stakes in Shell, Total, Eni and Equinor. The report doesn't specify how the funds are divided between the four companies which haven't commented on the report. Crude prices are adding to sharp gains made yesterday amid further signals OPEC plus oil producers are nearing an agreement to cut output by at least 10 million barrels a day at a virtual meeting later today. Hadley is with us for more on the prospects Hadley, lots of rumours, lots of speculation from the Algerian minister and so forth. What do we think is going to happen? It's really anybody's guess at this point, Jeff, and I think that that's being reflected in on the commentary that you're seeing, not just from analysts, but in the asides, frankly, from those directly involved in what's going to happen later today around 10 a.m. Eastern time, just a few hours from now, actually. This is going to be a virtual meeting of OPEC Plus producers. We're talking about all the folks that we usually see in that scrum in Vienna, and we're also talking, of course, about the Russians and whether or not the Russians and the Saudis are going to be able to get together on this one is the big question. And then further to that, whether or not the United States will be able to weigh in tomorrow when the G20 convenes a similar meeting of energy ministers. Now, when I've spoken to the folks here in this part of the world, they've essentially said to me, you know, this was a move by Saudi Arabia where they essentially went off the reservation. Nobody here was prepared uh, for what it was that they were going to do. And we've seen that reflected in the prices. And we've seen that reflected, frankly, in the up of production, the upping of production uh, here in these petrodollar economies right here in the Middle East. But what happens if there is no agreement? You remember back in March when all these folks were meeting in Vienna, uh, they came spectacularly close to a deal and failed to get one. I asked Hilly McCroft with RBC Capital Markets, listen in to what she had to say. I think we could easily get to a situation where if the Russians were to say, look, Saudi Arabia, you have to use a benchmark of your January production levels or to the United States, it's not good enough simply to count what CapEx is gonna do to your production, your cuts there. You need to make a mandated cut if those are the Russian terms, this could really fall apart. And again, prices could go to the teens. And then we will be looking at a situation where you know, U.S. producers will have to cut. I mean, ultimately, producers are going to have to cut production. It's just a question of is it going to be a coordinated cut or are the higher cost producers going to have to shut in first? Now, we're talking about potential cuts here of between 10 and 15 million barrels per day. That's essentially what I've been hearing from folks uh, in this part of the world. One of the other questions, of course, has to do with the United States, whether or not we'll see any kind of coordinated action from the U.S., whether that's even legal. Certainly, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump has weighed, on, weighed in on this several times in those very, very long press conferences he's been having from the White House of late. And he said uh, over the last 24 hours that, you know, we don't need a coordinated cut, he said, because they're already cutting back due to lower prices. Of course, that has major implications uh, for CapEx and for what's going to happen next with regards to the wells. You know, there have been uh, questions about whether or not the shale investment is going to really fall off a cliff here. And certainly it's been doing that already over the last couple of years, depending on which of these uh, companies and investors, these producers that you speak to. So a lot riding on this meeting in just a few hours from now, Jeff, and we're going to bring you all of the latest as it begins. Terrific, Hadley. Thank you so much for that. Let, let's have a quick look at the inquest numbers then. So the figures we're getting, uh, this is uh, 29 uh, view and then an outlook for 2020. Uh, 2020. Uh, group production for 2019 up 24% over the 2018 numbers. Uh, this is an oil business, of course. Revenue uh, coming in at $1.7 uh, billion. Uh, Vs, the 
1.2 billion for 2018 and an EBITDA of uh, just over a billion dollars here. Um, importantly, I think the group has also um, begun to adjust its uh, cost uh, picture for 2020. They're now targeting $190 million of operating cost savings in 2020. Let's bring in Amjad Basezu, the CEO of Enquest. Amjad, very good morning to you and thanks for joining us this morning. Um, obviously, we're fascinated by 2019, but clearly 2020 is what everybody's looking at now with this coronavirus issue. How strong do you think you can keep the business for 2020 given the risk uh, around coronavirus and this uh, glut of supply in the market? Well, thank you, Jeff. Um, yeah, 2019 seems uh, almost a decade away uh, given all the changes since uh, last year. Um, I, I think we've taken steps to to make sure that the business is very resilient. We've cut our costs uh, quite significantly uh, on the operating side. From, uh, from about $525 million to $335 million for this year. That is a, a, a very large reduction. We've also reduced our capital expenses to, uh, to about $120 million, almost a 50% reduction in capital. So um, we, our, our business is resilient now at uh, $25 a barrel for the remaining part of this year and roughly $27 a barrel into next year. That means it's cash flow break-even at these much, much lower levels. Our operating cost has come down also significantly from the low 20s, 22 last year, to $15 a barrel this year, and $12 a barrel next year, so extremely resilient. Now, the free cash flow numbers include um, also capital costs, uh, uh, abandonment costs, taxes, uh, uh, interest that's paid, everything else that we have to include within our cash flows. So we are very resilient uh, in, in these lower oil prices, and this the reason we have restructured it the way we have is we wanted to be uh, managing the company into a sustained low oil price environment. Amjad, there are three curves out there, and the world is obsessed by one, of course, which is the demand side, possibly by the supply side. But I want to look at the cost side as well, because only if the costs can get down uh, can spending be kept up at these levels. What's happening to costs in the industry at these levels as well? Because if the industry can control the costs, then, of course, uh, things get a lot more profitable at these lower levels if we're going to stay here for longer. I mean, I think the, the service industry has, has been through a, a, a long cycle of a downturn. I think margins are, are quite depressed already. I, I think there will be some incremental additions to some lower costs. I think we, we were looking at some incremental increases over the last 12 months in some sectors. I mean, the drilling rates have gone up probably 20 to 40 percent in terms of drilling rates. Uh, other rates have been going up. 10 to, to 20%, but I don't think there's really much speed in, in terms of the service sector. That, that sector has been hit very hard, and, uh, and I do feel that we're going to, we still have all the capacity in the service sector, and we'll see a, a, a significant decline uh, in that sector now that the capital costs have come down significantly. So the oldest of old adages in the industry is the cure for low prices is low prices. But because demand isn't coming back at these low prices because of all the obvious reasons we've discussed for the last month or so, is that still the case that eventually if we stay too low for too long, that we are going to see a massive spike at some stage as we have always done historically? Is this time that adage broken? 
I mean, this is the first time I think that uh, uh, we have seen a, a huge amount of uh, additional supply and a, and a very large demand destruction hitting at the same time. Uh, so I think with the, with the Saudis and the, and the Russians disagreeing in the last <coughs> OPEC meeting, we, we've seen an increase in, in supply where demand has come down by at least 20 or 30 percent uh, over the last few weeks, uh, maybe even maybe even uh, a larger amount because of, because of COVID. So I, I think in the short term there is no cure. I think we we are going to look for uh, at low prices for a while, but as things stabilize, uh, I do believe that the same, the adage is still valid and that it is low prices that will take. Uh, production out and reduce the amount of supply in the market. Uh, we've seen yesterday on the EIAs uh, probably one of the largest, actually the largest decrease I've seen uh, in the U.S. production. Uh, production is down 600,000 barrels a day week on week. Uh, there are many factors associated with that, COVID included, but but uh, but I do believe that shale uh, industry is uh, uh, you know is, is uh, struggling for capital. But also the, the, the realizations for inland crews uh, like Midland and, and, and Canada are in uh, uh, much lower than what we see as waterborne crews. So it's five dollars a barrel for Canada, uh, ten to fifteen dollars a barrel for Midland uh, inland crews. So uh, realizations for inland crews have come down significantly, and those will shut down significant production. Um, Jack, just looking to the future here, obviously we will come out of this and we will see um, perhaps a, a steady pickup in economic activity. But the governments will be looking to restock coffers after spending so much to try and ameliorate, uh, ameliorate the impact of this uh, uh, coronavirus. Um, are you fearful, perhaps, that uh, the energy companies may be uh, an obvious target? It may be perceived as politically acceptable to ramp up taxes on businesses like yours around the world. What, uh, what do you think may happen? I mean, unfortunately, uh, or, or I mean, I, our business, uh, the energy business, is not not a place that generates a significant amount of profits, especially at these lower prices. So I, I think uh, it'll be difficult. I mean, I'll pick the North Sea, for example. It'll be difficult to see too many uh, companies that are making significant cash flows or significant profits, uh, you know, uh, in in the near term, given the price structure that we have today. Indeed, I mean, the tax revenues on the North Sea, when the rates hadn't changed over the last, say, seven years, had gone down from probably 15 billion pounds to, to around a billion pounds uh, a year before last when figures were available. So I'm not sure there's, uh, there's a large uh, uh, kitty there to, to, to access. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.